Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke, welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. People say, well, science of reading doesn't apply. They're the recipients, but not the beneficiaries of the science of reading. That's so damaging because it's so untrue. You just heard Dr. Claude Goldenberg, Namalini and Olivier Professor of Education Emeritus in the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. Today, Dr. Goldenberg joins Dr. Liz Brooke to discuss how to find common ground in the literacy conversation on All for Literacy. Here's your host, Liz Brooke. Thank you for joining us today for part one of our conversation with Dr. Claude Goldenberg, Nomalini Olivier, Professor of Education Emeritus at Stanford University. Welcome, Claude, and thank you so much for spending some time with me today talking about emergent bilinguals and the science of reading. Thank you, Liz. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here with you. Recently, this spring, you helped lead a group and co-authored what I feel is a really powerful step forward for literacy education with the working paper called Narrowing Down to Find Common Ground, which I love that title, Shared Agreements for Effective Literacy Instruction in California. So can you maybe talk a little bit about the impetus behind this project? And then I want to dive into the themes of the paper. Sure. Well, this organization in California that you might have heard of called Pivot Learning initiated this project in order to try and anticipate and prevent some of the, shall we say, acrimonious discussions, exchanges that happen with great regularity. It seems like they're always going on. I mean, they're just chronic. But more specifically, the English language development framework in California, you know, we have these curricular frameworks, as do, you know, many states around the country. California have some particularly thick ones. I'm holding up my my, <laughs> my thumb and my forefinger about three inches apart. Very thick frameworks. And every so often, every, I don't know, six or seven years, they get reviewed, revised. And I don't know, it's kind of like War of Roses or something. And a revision was in the offing for the ELA, ELD framework. And the idea was to try and anticipate some of the issues that were clearly going to come out having to do with literacy. Literacy for English learners, literacy for kids who are having reading difficulties, whether they're dyslexic or not. Literacy for African-American kids and other kids from under-resourced communities. And then, of course, literacy for the general school population, what the balanced literacy contingent in higher education and in the schools themselves, and then the science of reading contingent, which replaced the scientifically based reading research of reading first. It was SBRR, now it's SOR. So all those interest groups were sort of coming to the fore. 
And there was this hope that we could sort of anticipate and maybe establish some agreements or some commonalities. So it's not just sort of a, an all-out war and everyone trying to get their particular verbiage and citations and beliefs and ideologies and research cited in the document. So that that was what motivated it. And one of the foundations in California provided the funding for it. And so Pivot asked me to participate as sort of a consultant because I had recently published a paper in Reading Research Quarterly that Mm -hmm. looked at the science of reading and English learners and reading wars. Those, those are sort of my three sort of touchstones. And the focus was on, on those three things. I mean, the reading war has been going on for a long time, and people are calling for end of the reading wars. And then there's these English learners that now are, I mean, have been on the landscape, have been in the landscape for a long time. And now one of the questions are coming that's coming up, does the science of reading apply to them? Right. And what are the implications for reading wars? Is this just another front in the reading wars or is this going to blow us all out of the water or what? So that was the basic idea there. And that my thesis is that you know, we need to stop these ridiculous reading wars because it's really not helping anyone. And yes, I mean, what we call the science of reading, as much as I don't like that term because it's become kind of a lightning rod, but right. reading research, the knowledge we have about what needs to happen in order for kids to, or anyone for that matter, to learn to read, that what we know from that also applies to English learners. And there's some research directly on English learners that we can benefit from if people were to pay attention to it. And plus, it's a more expansive literature. Just because they're English learners doesn't mean they're different species, different creatures, or have different brains. Now, the brains of English learners actually has recently become another kind of touchstone this whole debate. And we can talk about bilingual brains if you want, but that hadn't really reached any kind of crescendo at the time. It was really, can we bring what we know about from the research and some of the leading participants in these discussions, debates, wars, kerfuffles, call them what you want. Can we bring them together and say, okay, here's some things we can agree on, finding some kind of common ground. So I was asked to participate, you know, as a consultant, which I was only too happy to do. And then along with a former student at Stanford, who I knew, Eduardo Munoz Munoz, who is now an assistant professor, soon to be an associate professor, I'm sure, at San Jose (laughs) State, and some of the staff from Pivot. Eduardo primarily, and I participated, design basically was a year-long process that started, I think, March or April where we identified individuals who we thought should be part of the conversation, who represented different aspects of the the reading firmament, shall we say, in California. Mm -hmm. Eduardo took the leadership, sort of an interview protocol that just started from ground zero, asking people, what do you think are the big issues in literacy education in California? Right. And that's where those three themes came? Yeah, that's where those three themes came from. Because what happened is people identified certain issues in the interviews that were on Zoom. So they were audio and videotaped. And I watched them and Eduardo obviously watched them and analyzed them. And we came up with four themes. Then we had a series of focus groups to, and we shared with them the themes that emerged and there was some fine tuning. One of the themes that surprisingly didn't really emerge from the 
interviews was English learners, emergent bilinguals, multilingual learners, which are used sort of interchangeably. And we had a number of very strong EL bilingual education advocates says, wait a minute, where's the theme on English learners? Well, it really didn't come up in the interviews. I think it's kind of like hiding in plain plain sight. Right. (laughs) Everybody thought someone else was going to mention that. Or just so obvious, right? I mean, it's just right there. So, uh, you know, who's going to say the obvious? So we did had a series of focus groups. And from those focus groups emerged five themes. English learners was one of them. Teacher education was one. Power and control was one. And then early intervention was one, foundational skills was one. So there are five. And then what happened was we had it toward the end of the process in September, we had a face-to-face convening, like a two-day, a day and a half meeting, where we took the themes that emerged from the interviews and the focus groups, and then actually boiled it down to three that we were going to focus on. And those are the themes that you're asking about that came out in the Common Ground paper. Multilingual right. learners, foundational skills instruction, and early screening for intervention with kids with potential reading difficulties. So those are the three themes, and those are the ones around which we spent a solid day and a half trying to sort out areas of agreement, common ground, and issues within those that still need more discussion. Yeah. And I think those three, to your point, there's so many themes that could have been discussed in this idea of literacy and in, in multilingual learners or emergent bilinguals, early screening and foundational skills. I think even though there's only three, I think they cover a nice broad range of thinking about the foundational skills, more curriculum and what you focus on there. And then the importance of early screening, which I loved how you talked about understanding the purpose of a screener, Mm -hmm. right? Is not to diagnose. It's kind of that temperature check and understanding that. And then the debate about actually using that terminology. A lot of my work at FCR was around assessment. My dissertation was in assessment. And so it's always gotten this bad rap, but it's so critical to how we personalize and differentiate instruction. But I always challenge people. I say, what question are you trying to answer? You should know that before you give any assessment. Even if it's required of you, you should know what the data is going to help you do once you get it. And so I loved that discussion in the paper. But I want to come back to what you said, because we're hearing this so loud and clear with our customers is around the science of reading and emergent bilinguals. We often hear statements like emergent bilinguals are the recipients, not the beneficiaries of the science of reading. And so... We always, at Lexia, we've been talking about it in terms of like what you said, that the science of reading or the evidence, the decades of evidence around reading, not using that catchphrase, but the Mm -hmm. evidence is impactful and effective for emergent bilinguals, and they might need additional areas of focus or intensity in one of those strands of Scarborough's ropes, as we talked about, more so than a student whose first language is English, but that the 
underlying components, whether it's semantics, syntax, phonology, right, as well as the principles, meaning explicit, systematic, multisensory, those are effective for emergent bilinguals. So how do you respond to folks when they do say that emergent bilinguals are the recipients, not the beneficiaries of the science of reading? Well, first of all, I don't know what that means. You'd have to unpackage that phrase for me. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. What does it mean to be the recipient? I understand what it means, not the beneficiaries, but I just don't know the contrast that's being made. Yeah. So my understanding, and it's a good point to clarify with folks, but I think they just mean that they're in the class and they're being given this science of reading instruction using air quotes around science of reading instruction, and they're not benefiting from it. They're just receiving it and it's not doing anything to help them. Oh, I see. So they're receiving instruction that's science of reading in between air quotes defined or inspired, but they don't benefit from it. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Well, no, I think that's a complete misconception. I mean, that's one of the reasons science of reading has become this lightning rod, as I said, and we don't really clarify what we're talking about. There is research, both sort of brain research and behavioral classroom research. Now, full disclosure, I'm not a neuroscientist. I don't know the difference between my earlobe and my prefrontal lobe, except that (laughs) one's inside my head and the other one is outside of it. So I make no pretense there. But what I know from having read the research and having had some discussions with Ken Pugh, who's a very Mm well-known, world-recognized cognitive neuroscientist, is the process of learning to read is basically the same whether you know the language that you're learning to read in, or you're simultaneously learning the language you're learning to read in. Because the process of reading, what needs to happen in your head, and again, this is corroborated by classroom and behavioral studies, but what needs to happen in your head is that the sounds of the language need to be connected to the written representations of those sounds. Mm -hmm. The neuro-linguistic term is bind. They have to bind. Right, the sounds have to bind with the visual symbol. And then that connection or that binding then needs to be bound to the meaning of the word. And that's what the brain circuitry is that needs to be created in order to enable literacy, binding the sounds of the words to the written representation of those sounds to the meaning of the word. Right? That is what the brain circuitry has got to be constructed to do. And we're born knowing intuitively how to process oral language, otherwise known as speech. Mm -hmm. Barring some developmental delay or some anomaly, we have the mental neural equipment to make sense of oral speech. It's a human speech is what infants orient to most. They will orient in the first hours, certainly in days, weeks. Human speech is what they orient to most. And there's a good evolutionary reason for that. And evolutionary developmental psychologists have actually demonstrated how 
how rewarding, reinforcing, depending on your behavioral model, that's what they orient to because human speech is intrinsically meaningful. Now, it takes a while to understand the words and be able to produce the speech, but no one's got to teach you that. It's sort of intuitive. That's because human speech has been part of human evolution for about 300,000 years, last I counted. Written language is far more recent, 5,000 years, tops. Alphabetic languages are even more recent, 3,500 years. So oral language, speech, is part of the DNA of human beings. Written language, print, is literally a human invention. And you need to be taught somehow or somehow figure out, usually by being taught. Now, more or less systematically, more or less explicitly, as we know, and as you well know, Liz, from your SLP experience, the range is huge. Some kids get it seemingly almost like oral language. I mean, you need to tell them what the letters are and what the sounds are. You're not born knowing that, but it seems almost effortless. And on the other end, you have kids who have tremendous difficulty getting that sound symbol thing down, getting that brain circuitry going. And then the rest of us are sort of somewhere in the middle, needing a lot, needing a little. But there's no question that circuitry has got to be constructed in order to enable literacy. That has got to happen. Now, that basic circuitry and that basic connectivity is the same, whether you're monolingual, bilingual, trilingual, emergent bilingual, any of those. It's the same thing. The difference is that if you're learning to read in a language, you're simultaneously learning to speak and understand, you need additional instruction and oral language support because you're learning the language, so you don't know the meanings of the words necessarily. You're not right. familiar with the sounds, with the phonology of the language that you're learning. And you need additional support so that you know the meanings of the words that you're being taught to read by decoding. Because the process of successful word recognition involves seeing the letters, associating with the sounds, decoding, and then saying, is that a word I know? And does it make sense here? That's word recognition. Decoding is just like the first step in word recognition. Decoding is not equal to word recognition. It's the first entry into word recognition, which then has to be confirmed by the meaning of the word. Does it make, is it a word I know? And does it make sense there? If you know the language, you can accomplish that. If you don't know the language, you need additional support. So you know the meanings of the words and the sounds of the language that allow you to check metalinguistically. Does this word make sense here? Is it a word I know? Yes. Now I've recognized it. I appreciate that. And I think it's so important for our listeners, for myself, hearing that confirmation. Two things you said that I think are really important to pull out. Everything that you were saying there is really powerful, but I want to highlight that the brain needs to be taught to read, right? We Mm -hmm. are born knowing how to process oral language. Mm -hmm. We need to be taught, our brain needs to be taught how to read written language. And that is true whether you're learning the language that you're reading, you already speak that language. So that's really important. And what you said there at the end, that's kind of what I was trying to get at, but you said it much better in terms of that idea of yes and, right? So we need to teach them about the decoding, the full word recognition process, but not forget 
the language comprehension and even more enhanced or additional instruction in the meaning, connecting meaning to the print is really important. And I want to come back to one other thing you said earlier about the science of reading, this evidence base, these 50 years or so of research on what is important when children or adults are learning to read, you said is appropriate, does apply to emergent bilinguals, multilinguals, and that's what we talked about. One of the rebuttals, if you will, about that is that all of those decades of research studies did not include emergent bilinguals in the samples or were not studying multilingual learners. They were studying monolingual learners. So can you just speak to that a little bit in terms of how then can we say it applies to these students if they weren't included in those studies? Well, first of all, the premise underlying that question is incorrect. It is true that most of those studies focused on monolingual English speakers. Now, some of these were African-American kids who are sometimes called bi-dialectical speakers, and that's a whole other kind of complexity. And I hope at some point you'll have Julie Washington and possibly Mark Seidenberg on to talk specifically about that. about which I am not qualified to talk. But aside from that, most of the studies were with monolingual kids. But it's not true that emergent bilingual is not represented. In fact, some of the studies that Hoover and Tunmer did that generated the simple view of reading, some of those samples were in Texas and South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley with emergent bilinguals, English learners. So right out the gate, some of these sort of foundational studies that generated the simple view of reading, had English learners as part of their sample. Now, more important, however, in the years since, there was the National Literacy Panel, which even my English learner bilingual education advocate friends acknowledge. There was National Literacy Panel that I was on. So I know that there was, I mean, aside from the fact, the other stuff that I've read, there were studies that we cited there based on samples with kids who were emergent bilinguals or English learners at the time. Back then was, do you call them limited English proficient or English learners? And now it's, you call them English learners, you call them emergent bilinguals or multilingual learners. We swim in this alphabet soup, the labels change, but the challenges and issues remain stubbornly the same. So there are children in these samples that are English learners, emergent bilinguals. And one of the things that National Literacy Panel concluded, and I've used that in things that I've written since then, is that those famous or infamous five pillars of reading, the National yes. Reading Panel, phonemic awareness, phonics, decoding, fluency, vocabulary, and you know the list better yes, than I do. The fab but five. there's five yes. of them. Yeah, there's five <laughs> of them. That those also apply to English learners but that particularly for the ones that require more understanding, like comprehension and vocabulary, you need to provide additional oral language support. That's been part of the literature. If anyone bothers to read that very long and sometimes impenetrable report, 
If people right. actually bother to read it, they'll see that was there. And this was back in 2006 is when it came out. So this should not be a new thing that I'm saying that kids, it's those, the same factors are involved, but you need additional oral language support for the vocabulary, for the semantics, for the sounds of the language. And I'll tell you, Liz, I'll go even a step further because I think we actually, even we know more now, thanks to some studies by Sharon Vaughn and -hmm. Linnea Airy, which actually took the hypothesis. I mean, there was an implicit, if not explicit hypothesis from the National Literacy Panel that if you use the same components of reading instruction that have been demonstrated to be effective. Now, part of the problem is not in every case, when we say effective, we mean compared to some business as usual or control alternative, because we don't have anything that works for 100% of the kids 100% of the time. So when we say effective, we have to be judicious in what effective actually means. Effective when compared with what? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it's a probabilistic thing that most people just aren't not used to thinking in those terms. But effective really means you're likely to get much better results if you do A rather than B. And the A in this case is focused on those components of reading instruction identified by the National Reading Panel. And the evidence is quite clear not in 100% of the cases, for 100% of situations, you're much more likely to get better results if those five components help define your instruction than if those five components are missing. And what we found from Linnea Aries and Sharon Vaughn studies is that if you take a program defined by those components and other things, not just those things, but but those things and other things, those components, both Sharon and Linnea, had developed programs that were successful with monolingual English speakers. And then they said, okay, what do we do with these early intervention studies that'll make them successful with emergent bilinguals? Well, let's add an oral language component. So rather than assuming they know the words in the text that we're teaching them to read, which you can assume with five, six, seven-year-olds who are English speakers, we can't assume that with five, six, seven-year-olds who are English learners. That's why they're called English learners. They're learning the language. (laughs) So if we add an oral language component, vocabulary, discussions, making sure they understand the words of the instruction, the text we're teaching them to read, they understand the sounds, they use them as part of their working vocabularies. If we add that, then it should be relatively equally effective for English learners as it was for English speakers without that additional language component. Component. And sure Mm -hmm. enough, that's what they found. They found that if you add the oral language component, the additional support, and even the neuro-linguistic literature says the brain needs additional support in the semantic and phonological components of the language that are being learned. You need that same circuitry being constructed, but you need additional support for the semantics, the vocabulary, mm-hmm. and the phonology, the sounds. sounds and that's what yeah. these two interventions did. They provided exactly on a behavioral classroom way what the brain science has been saying is needed for the brain to construct that circuitry to enable learners learning to read a second language that's what they need in order to become literate in that language right i appreciate you pointing out specific examples as well i so appreciate this conversation and as we wrap up today i have two questions for you As we think about all of the things we've just discussed, what are you seeing that makes you excited 
for the future? I try to separate what I want to see and what I do see. Sometimes it's hard. Yes. <laughs> because I want to see more explicit efforts to find common ground because I know it exists. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew it before we did this pivot project and I'm more convinced of it now. And I think there are other areas of common ground we can find. So I want to see that. It's mixed. I made, and the jury's still out because there's still a lot of skepticism. And I don't worry about skepticism. I think skepticism is a good thing. But there's a difference between informed skepticism and uninformed skepticism. And there's a lot of uninformed skepticism about the science of reading in English learners. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I worry about is that a lot of this uninformed skepticism is fueled by misinformation. This notion of the bilingual brain, the assumption, the belief, I don't know exactly where it comes from, that you have to teach English learners in a fundamentally different way because they're bilingual and they have fundamentally different brains. Right. Well, there are some differences. They're what the neuroscientists called more functional rather than structural. There are two languages going on there, and there are some definite benefits to A, building on and nurturing the home language. I mean, mm-hmm. if I were the king of the world, I'd make bilingual education and bilingualism. I mean, it's common in schools as math, science, reading, and anything else. I mean, I think we need to move towards a bilingual view of what is beneficial for the society, for the individuals, culturally, intellectually, financially, economically, any adverb you want. And there's a benefit to maintaining the home language, both for the sake of bilingualism and because you can use it to bootstrap skills and development in a second language. A lot of things transfer. Right. But that's, and that is incontrovertible. There's just no doubt about that. But that's different from saying that bilinguals have a different brain And you got to teach them in a way that's different. There's really no evidence of that. Now, science and evidence changes. At some point, someone might discover that there really are some structural differences and bilinguals need a certain kind of instruction because of this different, some node. I I don't know. Like I said, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't even begin to speculate. It might happen, in which case we need to take another look at this question. But at the moment, there's no basis for saying you got to provide different instruction based on a different brain. So the other thing that you brought up, Liz, that people say, well, science of reading doesn't apply. They're the recipients, but not the beneficiaries of the science Mm -hmm. of reading. That's so damaging. Right. Because it's so untrue. If you know really what the science says, whatever you call it, if you know what it says and what the findings are, then you'd have to rethink that. But there's a lot of resistance. A lot of it's ideological. Part of it, I think, stems from the fact that there are a lot of populations of kids that have not been very well served. I mean, that's why I got into this education right. thing, because a lot of kids who are disadvantaged. Social justice. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the opportunities. Well, ironically, some of the most fervent champions of social justice for these children are really depriving children and their teachers of knowledge that could actually be helpful. That's a paradox that I've recently stumbled upon, shall we say. Right. And there's knowledge that would help all kids, all teachers, it's not being equitably shared, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And even if it is shared, to your point, it's not necessarily being implemented in a way that's going to be beneficial, because that's a whole nother set of issues right. that we talked about a while <laughs> that's ago. That's the next episode, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So my 
I'm guardedly optimistic because at some level, I think if you're in education and not optimistic, you need to find something else to do. So I'm hopeful and but waiting to see how things play out. Okay, And then I guess the last piece that is maybe more to your point, being hopeful about the future, but something that you can share with teachers who are listening. Mm -hmm. What actionable advice would you give to classroom teachers who are looking to improve their knowledge, looking for solutions that they can implement today, something that they can control? What's something actionable that you would suggest to teachers who are looking to improve their knowledge and improve their students' success? Great. Well, I would say two things. First of all, be mindful of the fact that foundational skills, and by which I mean phonemic awareness, letter sound knowledge, what we call phonics, decoding, fluency, automaticity with that, those are the foundational skills, that the things that need to be bound, the sound to the symbol, right? The term for it is phonics, but it's actually a little bit deeper and more sophisticated than that. Foundational, there's a reason to call foundational skills because they're foundational to literacy. You need those to be able to read and write. And that's true whether you're learning to read and write in Spanish or in English or in Russian or in any alphabetic language. And to a certain extent, it's also true if you're looking at a logographic or ideographic language where the symbols represent concepts. Neuroscientists have found that the same brain circuitry, needs, it's counterintuitive because you think if you're learning to read in an alphabetic language, that's got to be a different set of things going on in the brain, that if you're learning to recognize a symbol as water or sun, whatever the symbols are. But it turns out the same thing has to happen in the brain. You have to associate the sound with the symbol and wrap it in meaning, right? Those things have got to be cemented, be bound together. And that's true regardless of language. It plays out differently depending on characteristics of the orthography. But what needs to happen in the brain is, from my understanding, and if I'm wrong, then blame the neuroscientist, don't blame me. (laughs) That's what needs to happen. So foundational skills are really important. But at the same time, while you're building those foundational skills, don't forget the other strands of Scarsborough's rope that you have to accomplish vocabulary, knowledge, background knowledge, comprehension. Mm-hmm. You, you got to do the read-alouds, not at the same time as you're working on foundational skills, but while those foundational skills are being acquired, because that knowledge, vocabulary, comprehension skills, those eventually are going to be fundamental and will determine your success as a reader and a writer. So that's really what the National Reading Panel 20-some years ago called, that was their conception of a balanced program, not what we now call balanced (laughs) literacy, which is this random thing, look at a letter, look at a picture, look at the context. That should be called random literacy, not balanced literacy. (laughs) Balanced literacy in the National Reading Panel conception, which is, I believe, the correct one, is you work on foundational skills for a certain part of the instructional day, reading hour, whatever. But then you also work on those things that'll build language, background knowledge, comprehension, the communication skills. That is a balanced program. But there's no question about the importance of those foundational skills, regardless of the language you're learning to read in. Then that was more than just one thing, but let's just assume that was one thing. It was one thing with a lot of (laughs) subparts. 
<laughs> but the other thing I'd say specifically to English language teachers of English language learners, I'm totally in favor of bilingual education program. But the fact is that most kids, most emergent bilinguals don't have the benefit of that. They are an English medium instruction. I wish I could change that, but at the moment I can't. Mm-hmm. So what you need to do if you're teaching kids, emergent bilinguals, to read in a language or simultaneously learning, those foundational skills are still important, but make sure you provide the oral language support, the oral language instruction. So as they're learning to read those simple words, those simple CVC words and mm-hmm. CVCE words, those simple spelling patterns that are really important for nailing down those foundational skills, make sure you know what those, they know what those words mean. Right. Because remember the concept of orthographic mapping, right? Linnea Aries, powerful concept that Mm -hmm. once you read a word by associating the sounds with the letters, with the meaning, once you read that a few times, they become sight words. This is a different definition of sight words than we had when you and I came up. Right. Our definition was irregular, crazy words. High frequency that you can't sound out. That you can't sound out. Well, Linnea has introduced a different conception of a sight word, which is Mm -hmm. phonetically regular, but you're not decoding it. You're not decoding it because the sound, the symbol, the meaning has been in front of your eyes Mm -hmm. and parked in your brain with sufficient frequency that you recognize it by sight. You can't do that as a learner if you don't know the meanings of the words. So you got to provide that extra language support. And I would suggest these two articles by Linnea Airy and Sharon Vaughn. Sharon's in particular has a very good appendix that lays out almost like a manual, the kind of oral language vocabulary and discourse instruction that we're providing to the kids as a part of their, let's say, embellished, enhanced oral language early literacy intervention. So those would be the things that I would recommend. And we can certainly put those references or citations in the notes of the podcast. So Claude, when you think about this, what might be one way that you think of that we could end these reading wars? Well, it's actually part of this thing that's just getting posted this week that people who are, and I alluded to it, you know, people who are thought leaders and positions of responsibility, universities or foundations or wherever they happen to be, need to take responsibility to really know the research and and speak knowledgeably from the research. I mean, there's more to knowledge than, you know, what appears in journals, for sure. But if you ignore what's, you know, some of the best knowledge we have based on research, if you distort it, if you misrepresent it, I don't really sound mean, but that's on you, right? Because you can't, you can't put it on teachers to check out your claims by going to the American Educational Research Association or the scientific studies and reading. I mean, that's just not a reasonable burden to put on teachers. So we have a responsibility to be informed ourselves and to represent what's in the research in an honest and truthful way. And it's hard for me to imagine some serious common ground being reached unless unless we do that. Right. Thank you, Claude, for taking the time to talk with us today. 
There is so much here and such rich conversation that we've split this episode into two parts to bring you the full conversation. So join us for part two in the next episode. Help us welcome more people to the Literacy Conversation by leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. And I'd love to hear more about what you're experiencing in literacy education. So join the conversation on Twitter and let me know what you think by following me at Liz C. Brook. Thanks so much, everyone. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the literacy conversation.